You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I've been waiting all week to talk to Sarah Green Carmichael. All right. So we will goodnight these two All right. and say thank you very much, Abigail. Thank you very much, Brian. Let's bring in Sarah Green Carmichael because she wrote an opinion piece at the beginning of the week that really piqued my interest, talking about the fact that all these layoffs we're reporting on, and now it's every day, um, a few thousand at least, could be a really bad idea by um, the executive board. So Sarah uh, joins us now uh, on Bloomberg Radio. Um, she's a former executive editor at the Harvard Business Review, where she hosted the HBR IdeaCast, former mentor really? at Brown University Women's Launchpad. And of course, uh, you probably recognize her from Barron's. Um, now she's writing for us. Sarah, what's, what's the idea here? That these companies have just gone through so much and spent a lot to hire people. Now they're starting to fire those very same people. Yeah, it seems like a little bit of wasted resources. It's sort of like you painted the room and now you've decided to gut renovate it. Um, <laughs> so it, it makes the companies look a little bit uh, short-sighted, I guess. And, and I think, you know, the big message that when I looked into the research and talked to people was that you spend all this money to hire people. What's most important is not the exact number of employees, but your culture? Do you have a culture of innovation? Um, if you do, you could weather the recession and ask yourself, you know, what do we do with this extra capacity? You know, what new things do we create? How do we take advantage of this time? Um, but instead, it seems like companies are, are being a little bit penny-wise, pound-foolish by, say, you know, jettisoning um, sometimes a small percentage of their workforce, but still, you know, tens of thousands of people. Uh, Sarah, do we know a couple of things? One is uh, these companies, a lot of these tech companies have almost doubled their workforces in the last three to four to five years. So one could argue, boy, they overhired. And, and second, there's also an argument that, you know, like a lot of companies, a lot of industries, they didn't really let people go during the pandemic. That would be kind of heartless here. So maybe they got some catch up to do there. What do you, do you get a sense that this is specific to the tech industry? Because Michael Barr from Bloomberg News was just in here this morning reporting Taco Bell, they need 25,000 employees. You know, Chipotle, they need 20,000 employees. I don't know. It's kind of tough to circle that square there. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about the K-shaped economy for years now, and it does seem a little bit like this is, you know, tech companies. It's also some financial firms um, and consulting firms. 
um, you know, maybe some of these firms are a little overstaffed, especially the tech companies, because in some cases, you know, they still have many more employees than they did at the start of the pandemic, even with the layoffs, right? So they're still growing. Um, so you could make, a, I think, a solid argument that the tech companies might be in a slightly different position. Um, but I think, you know, for so many companies, you know, you mentioned food service, um, retail businesses, so many companies are having trouble just hiring anyone. So it's a very sort of weird economy where you can't get enough people at one level and other companies think maybe they've got slightly too many. I do think that if um, those tech companies are continuing to grow, um, a hiring freeze might have been better than the kind of incredibly morale damaging uh, yep. prospect of layoffs. That's the, one of the big problems, right, is the damage to morale. Because, you know, if you get fired, that's bad. Um, but if, if, if you're worried about getting fired for months and then you narrowly avoid the axe, that's still not great. Especially if it's, some of the people out the door are, you're, you know, you're still close with. You might end up hating your managers and, you, what do you call it, quiet quitting. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that really comes through in the, the data is that uh, layoffs do lead to higher turnover. So you have the people that you fire, um, and then you have the people who all then spend the next few months dusting off their resumes and looking for work elsewhere. So it really could lead to a lot of attrition, which could lead some of these firms to become understaffed, which can be very costly. How much of this is, we used to have a function on the Bloomberg Terminal, L-O-S-S, -S, go, loss, go. And I think we got rid of it because it felt heartless. What it would do is it'd put up a price chart of the stock and then it would put red circles around the firing announcements. And of course, usually <laughs> when you announce firings, Wall Street being the heartless mob that it is, sure. goes and buys the stock, right? How much of this do you think is driven by that? Because these tech stocks have gotten hit hard. I think it's very much driven by quarterly expectations. Um, so, and I think what's a shame is that you will see a stock rise a little bit, usually on an announcing layoffs. Um, but then, you know, what happens the next quarter or the quarter after that? You know, the stock usually settles right back down again. Um, so it, it does seem like it's actually very short-term thinking kind of thing. How can we placate Wall Street? What can we sh do to show them that we're taking this seriously? Um, and unfortunately, I think... You know, the message so often to the remaining employees is, you know, we'll just have to do more with less. And I think what actually might happen at some of these companies is people will have to do less with less. You know, it will affect revenue. It will affect other opportunities that they, you know, would hope to achieve in the long run. All right. Great stuff. Really appreciate you taking the time. Sarah Green Carmichael, she is the editor of Bloomberg Opinion, talking about layoffs. And we've seen it again. It's it's tough to kind of, you know, kind of take a look at all the data with it. The global labor market is so so strong but these tech companies we've seen a lot of headline noise here in terms of laying off people and, and it hasn't been driving the price up recently maybe initially it, yeah maybe uh you know the non-tech companies especially when 3m says we got to fire thousands of people or when ibm says we got to fire thousands of people people say oops what's, yeah. what's the deal with your demand exactly right so we'll see if we're gonna get more of that we got a lot of tech earnings next week and we'll stay on top of that and we'll see what they want to do with their headcount this is bloomberg Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management 
to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, ben Slavin, he's a Global Head of ETFs for BNY Mellon Asset Servicing. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, so he gets the gold star today for showing up uh, when most people don't show up at work. And literally, I'm looking around, I don't see a body here. Um, but that's kind of how the world is these days. Ben, I mean, it's Friday. Right, I know. I guess that's whatever. So, Ben, you at ETFs, I mean, you can't help but grow. It's just a question of how much you do grow uh, in the ETF business. Talk to us about BNY Mellon. What are you guys seeing in the business these days? Well, first, thanks for having me. Great to be here. And before we begin, I just want to give a quick happy birthday shout out to Spy. So we're 30, oh, yeah. we, are, we are 30 years into right? the ETF journey. Wow, and I would have said 10 years maybe. What's the name of the Arthur Most or Nate? Nate, Nate Most yes. was sort of the considered the wow. godfather uh, all those years ago. Um, he actually recently passed, but uh, the legacy lives on. Holy cow. But here we are. Thir- on the Amex, by the way. That's oh, the is that right? Amex. Okay. Yep. Yeah, long gone uh, at this point. I actually think it's condos. But <laughs> in, in this environment, we've seen an acceleration of not only product launches, but also adoption by investors. So last year was a record for the ETF industry. Um, actually, in the last two years at BNY Mellon on our platform um, that we service a, a, a large percentage of the industry, we were launching almost one ETF a day on our platform. Now that is slowed and our expectation is that it will slow a bit and also closures will tick up. So on a net basis, we might not hit that record, but the queue looks strong. And one of those drivers is really the mutual funds starting to convert to ETFs. So that's one of the reasons, right? We had a regulatory change that allowed mutual fund conversions to ETFs. And frankly, ETFs are just a lot cheaper. I mean, if you're an investor, it makes a lot more sense, uh, depending on obviously your goals and what you want to do, your risk tolerance, et cetera. But uh, you're, you're looking at 25 or 50 basis points, maybe 95 or 100 rather than, you know, one and a half or two percent. Fees matter. Um, and that has been one of the drivers of ETF adoption. But look, you know, from an asset manager standpoint, investors are clearly preferring the ETF structure. Mm. And that is putting a lot of pressure on the industry. So some of the mutual fund sponsors are saying, hey, if we can't beat them, join them. And now that the path is open to convert a mutual fund to an ETF, 
it just provides another way for large mutual fund complexes to enter the ETF space and continue to grow their funds and, and to some degree stop some of the bleeding that we've seen coming out of mutual funds at the expense of ETFs. I don't, I don't, when I was a sell side analyst, I made a living with the mutual funds. I'd go up to Boston, see, you know, Fidelity and Putnam and all those guys. So that's because they had a gajillion analysts covering chemicals and media and all that kind of stuff and lots of portfolio managers. If they were to convert to an ETF and cut the fees by like a gajillion percent, what happens to all those, all that cost, the analysts, the portfolio managers, all that stuff, what happens to that cost? It's putting an incredible amount of pressure on yeah. those asset managers. In fact, I, I read an analysis um, and I believe it was uh, one of the Bloomberg analysts who made an assumption that roughly 20 billion in revenue has been sucked out of the asset management Ooh. industry sector. And a large degree of that is due to ETFs, whether it be simply the cost, as you were mentioning, but also um, you know, really the, the fact that it's, a lot of that asset is passive. Um, that has come in to the industry, which doesn't require those those analysts. Um, Although there's a lot of actively managed ETFs, and they're really gaining in popularity. I mean, Jack Bogle would be, ironically, I think, celebrating in his grave right now, because yeah. this is part of his legacy as well, even though he turned down, uh, what is it, Nate Most, when he first came to his office. Yep. Yeah, I mean the old the old ETF adage is the the whole passive is massive, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of tagline. But you're right, it's changing from a product development standpoint. If you think at what's happening now versus where the assets are, more than half of the products in the industry that were launched in this sort of latest sort of wave of new products are actively managed. In fact, that that's what we saw on our own platform. And if you look at our queue going forward, again, the majority of the products are active. And if you see what is going on just this year at this point in the market cycle. Actively managed ETFs are about 3% roughly of the industry, but they've accounted for about 40% of the flows here in 2023 in January. So again, small base, but you are seeing um, you know, quite a bit of investor interest. Part of that is the market cycle, and part of that is there's just frankly more product and choice for investors to, to choose from, and, and that's driving it. So does... Do do corporations, do companies, do they offer ETFs for the 401ks? Because some people tell me, that, oh, that's, the, that's kind of where, that's for mutual funds. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, 401ks have been kind of the last stand, um, okay. really, for mutual funds. And that is where the stickiest and, and sort of mutual funds remain dominant. But the bottom line is ETFs are starting to crack into that market. The fact is, for more than a decade, you can have ETFs and 401ks. I, I've had one myself and invested in ETFs. I don't think we you have simply need a brokerage account, right, to be able to access those ETFs. And so it really is a matter of the 401k plan itself allowing investors to access ETFs. I, I, and so I know, Fidelity I know, we, I know we can, by the way. But I know Fidelity we can. manages, isn't, doesn't Fidelity do Bloomberg's thing? I, I, I don't, my, my guy, Rick, at Ameriprise, okay. um, he sent oh, me recently a few um, options, and S-Junk was one of them. So I told him, <laughs> I told him I want high yield. But So you can, and I think the real, um, one of the other big drivers, though, is that the kids are investing in apps, right? And they don't want as much of the red tape when they're using Robinhood or Webull or whatever. And this is just a much easier way yep, yep. to invest in a diversified product. If, if that's what you're after, you can also go for sing, single stock ETFs and leverage up. But uh, this just seems 
like so much cleaner and uh, than than a mutual fund, right? Yep, absolutely. And again, there's the other benefits we talked about. Certainly liquidity and the low cost is a piece of it. But remember, even when we're talking about retirement accounts, you know, it's also about the ability to construct with precision asset allocation models that fit a variety of not only time horizons, but profiles. And again, ETFs continue to proliferate. And that precision allows the asset allocators or those putting that kind of investment advice out there for investors, whether it be packaged or not, with an incredible amount of precision and the ability to, again, customize those portfolios that really make sense for investors, which is just very difficult to do uh, in a mutual fund uh, wrapper. I mean, I can't even think of any reason to be long the asset management business at all. This ETFs thing it's a long-term story, it seems to me. I mean, is, is Boston, Fidelity, Putnam, Wellington, I mean, are those guys, what do they do? I mean, a lot of them are trying to jump into they the play. ETF game. They, they got to play. play, I guess, if, yeah. If you can't beat them, join them. I mean, Fidelity is a great example. I mean, they have come in to the ETF market, um, and now they're really starting to ramp up not only their product development, but also the distribution of those products, and you're starting to see the assets move forward. J.P. Morgan, another large firm that's, really trying to lean into the ETF effort that's, uh, again, uh, had a legacy mutual fund business. So it's, it's changing. Well, what do you guys do at BNY Mellon Asset Servicing? How do you? So we, we provide infrastructure to the entire industry. So roughly, we have a quarter of the industry's assets. Um, wow. And we saw last year, because of the record volume, we saw close to $1.8 trillion in notional volume flowed through our pipes. And these are the creation and redemption orders that are coming through all the ETFs we service. It's and a great company. We have, you know, again, provide all of that back middle office services to power up our sponsors' ETFs. And uh, again, that business is growing for sure, and at the same time, the complexity is growing as well as these products proliferate, um, and you know, again, covering almost every asset class, uh, every market in the world uh, that you can possibly think of putting in an ETF at this point. Now, one of the things that drew me to ETFs to begin with was, well, Eric Balchunas and um, uh, Tony Sarafagas, who, who do research for us, are on the money. Um, they run through the flows, and you can really read so much of what's going in the broader market by ETF flows. And that's what I thought initially was so cool. What do you see in the flows right now? Lack of conviction. <laughs> that's not a great answer. <laughs> I knew you were gonna. I knew you were gonna. You were gonna be unhappy with that. But that is the fact. It is interesting to see. So if you just take something like fixed income, which again we saw um, a, a very large churn in fixed income last year. I mean, obviously due to the bond market route. Again, money coming out of mutual funds into ETFs, um, where ETFs, again, picked up market share. And you look at what's happening in January, and I just took a look at the leaderboard, and you see um, not only short duration, you see the long bond TLT, you know, the 20-year-plus yep. picking up flow. You see high yield. You see investment grade. Um, I see AGG, which is the total bond market all yep. picking up flow. All right. Hence, my comment at this point, lack of conviction. The one thing right. we are seeing that's unique is international. Um, okay. And that's been a, yep. a sort of hot, you know, coming into the beginning of this year. All right, Ben, great stuff. Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs, BNY Mellon Asset Servicing. Chat GPT, I, I don't know what it is, but you know, you build, you take a look, what's it take to build a website these days? Don't you just hire some kid and he does it for you i think chat gpt now is that kid and it does it in 30 seconds i mean I it depends know. again like the ai told us when when sam potter and katie greifeld tried to put uh 
an ETF together, it really depends on your parameters, right? right. You, you got to be a little more specific All than right. just build me a website. All right, let's talk to somebody who kind of is in this space. James Clift, founder of the firm's called Durable. Uh, James, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us what Durable does, and then we'll get into the whole chat GPT. Matt can talk about it because I really don't know. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Durable helps small businesses get online in less than 30 seconds. What? So with three inputs, your location, uh, your business category. Um, wait, there's two inputs. Uh, you essentially have a working website. We write the copy, we pick your images, we pick your colors, we pick your layout, give you everything you need to launch a beautiful website in less than 30 seconds, get a custom domain name, get analytics built in, and then you're off to the races. And what's that called? So, and what does that cost me? Uh, right now it's free for 30 days and $10 a month. So I, so exactly. So yeah. I had read about durable. I I've heard about this and that's why my guess 30 seconds was pretty much on the money. Um, and then what's the next step? I mean, I assume you can fine tune it at some point after you give those, just those two variables. Exactly. There's a, there's a custom editor within it. We actually have AI within the platform as well. So you can regenerate different components. You can test different copy. Um, essentially our whole product is thinking it from an AI first perspective. So just making it really easy for people to play around with different layouts, different images, getting to a point where they're just excited about what they're creating and what they're launching. So typically this website building process for an individual one, you're doing it on your phone when you're in a McDonald's drive through half the time. <laughs> so like, how do you make that experience fun and enjoyable as opposed to this kind of clunky experience where you're trying to get a pixel to be in the right place? Um, and that's really how we're thinking about it is how do we make this accessible to the 99% of folks um, out there that well, want a website but don't have one yet? The cool thing is I've owned a domain name for, I'm gonna say over 15 years now. Have you? that I just have never acted, a few of them actually, because I had this idea way back in the day, so I bought gotohellpants.com <laughs> and cocktailpartypants.com and mrfancypants.com. I see where you're going, okay. Exactly, but I never, I, I was like, I don't know what HTML even stands for, so <laughs> I've never acted on that, so now I guess I could do it with uh, with Durable. Exactly. Who, who is your, your typical customer, James? Yeah, so typically we're we're working with solo business owners, so someone who's um, an owner operator of their business. So primarily in the services space, so we have um, a very wide variety of those folks, though. So personal trainers, creatives, consultants, home services, um, essentially anywhere where you're trading your hours for dollars or hours for projects, we're a really great fit because typically these folks don't have the time or the budget to hire expensive web development firms. And they're pretty simple businesses that you're trying to operate. You're not trying to run these complex e-commerce inventory. It's, hey, I'm offering a service. How do I get that online, get more customers and make my life easier? Um, that's really who we're working with. All right, so chat GPT, you say uh, it's dominated your inbox and news feeds. Talk to us about that business and kind of the impact of chat GPT on your business. Are they a competitor? Um, they're a partner, yeah. I think, um, I mean, it's the most exciting technology that I've seen in my 15 years working on the internet. Um, and I think the world agrees. Um, I'm excited about it. And I think it's this new evolution of software, right? So previously is there's this world where um, the user has to do the work, um, which is you got to log in, you got to click the buttons, you got to think of what to say, you got to think of what image to choose. Um, for a knowledge worker, it's, hey, I need to create this formula in Excel. I need to write this document. Um, whereas now this new AI revolution is creating this 
um, different world where the AI does the work and your skill and knowledge is what can actually tell the AI what to do. Um, so it's this new paradigm shift that I'm just so excited about because so much of work and even for our users, right? It, it's, um, it frustrates me that they have to do these things within the app. Um, why don't we just make it automated? Why can't you just talk to your app to ask it to do things? How much smarter can software get? Um, so I'm just looking at this as a brand new user experience um, that's going to open up just so many opportunities for folks to well, and, um, make make their jobs better and easier. I mean, this kind of technology is finally starting to work in places where we've been trying to make it work for a long time, right? With Siri and you know your car. My car can finally call my mom when I push the talk button and say, call mom. Yeah. And it hasn't been able to do it for a decade. Um, is this going to replace a lot of... You know, for example, what me and Paul do, I saw the Wall Street Journal reporting earlier that um, BuzzFeed, which is a you know, journalistic news site, is going to rely on ChatGPT to write some of its content. Yeah, I think if you look at any evolution of technology, there's always this fear of job replacement. Um, what I believe in is it's going to let people focus on what they're really good at. So y'all are very good at your jobs. You've got an audience. You've got a personality. Um one, you could train your own AI model to scale yourself. So maybe you start doing 15 different radio shows in 15 different languages in real time. Um, so I think the, the individual actually becomes more important. And everyone says, everyone's worried about AI replacing their jobs. Um, I think AI is going to replace a lot of employers, whereas the individual can now become their own business of one and scale themselves and solve all the things that um, employers or corporations do well. I think individuals will have the power to do that. So I think it opens up a lot more opportunities than it takes away. And I, yeah, I think we, again, we haven't seen what this can do yet, but I think for folks like anyone with a skill and who can think critically and use this technology, I think it makes them a lot more powerful as an individual and gives them a lot more economic opportunity across the world too. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of markets that we're seeing even um, that, English is their second language. They're building a website in English, and now they can offer their skills to a brand new market and communicate in mm. not their first language. I guess which it's is, like a, just, yeah. It's been compared so to a calculator a lot, right? So, Paul, you, you guys grew up with that Hewlett Packard, you know, that HP 12C. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that didn't replace you. That made you better at your job. Exactly. All right, so I think it's pretty fascinating. I guess Max Headroom isn't coming to to replace us anytime <laughs> soon. Um, so what's the uh, what's the path forward look like for Durable then? Um, you know, how how do you scale up from here? When's the IPO? Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll ask the AI when the IPO is, but the the traction's been incredible. So there's so much market demand for what we're doing. We're growing like 300% month over month. Um, and the, the numbers are not small at this point. So it's really just trying to catch up on, on building technology. So we've got a massive backlog for our engineers to work through. We're, we're retraining and retraining our own AI models. Um, we're building these brand new user experiences. Um, so again, thinking AI first, what, what, how, how minimal can these inputs be to, to build workflows for our customers? So really looking at abstracting as much as possible um, for this solo business owner. So one part of that's marketing and websites, and then you have um, workflows like invoicing and scheduling, and then accounting and kind of the back office stuff. Yep. So every piece of this workflow for an individual business owner, how do we just make their job so easy that all they have to do is show up, do the work. And I think in my ideal world, right. you can say, hey, I've got this skill. 
um, I press two buttons. I've got a business. I've got a customer lined up yep. tomorrow. And all of a sudden, I just have this complete freedom over my pricing, yep. my schedule, flexibility. Um, all right, and good to me, stuff. that's the utopian world that we're trying to create. All right, James, great stuff. James Clift is the founder of Durable Creating Websites. It's like a matter of seconds. How cool is that? Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's move to somebody who does this stuff for a living, and he is working a huge scam. This is Don Steinbrugger. He's been covering uh, markets for a long time. He's the CEO and founder of Age Call Partners. Uh, but he's working down in – he does it from Richmond, Virginia, which is probably my favorite town in America. I love Richmond. Went to school there. My twins were born there. Great, great town. Somehow Don, who is the proud member of the Summit High School, New Jersey, class of 1980, somehow he's working his scam down there in Richmond – Don, thanks so much for joining us again here. I mean, what are you telling your clients about these markets here? I mean, earnings are coming in. The Fed Reserve is moving. A lot of moving pieces here. What are you telling your clients? Uh, so, Paul, I think it's a good time for the hedge fund industry. Uh, you know, I am not optimistic on the capital markets this year. As you know, the Fed has said they're going to continue to raise rates, although at a slower pace. Uh you know, you, people have known for a long time you don't want to fight the Fed. The Fed is not going to lo lower rates probably until at least 2024. I think there's going to be a recession. It's going to cause some headwinds for the equity market. So I'm not looking at the equity market roaring back. Uh, if interest rates go up a little bit more, it's not going to be uh, good for the bond market. So, you know, relative value, uh, hedge fund strategies, I think it make a lot of sense. Uh, hedge fund strategies that aren't correlated to the uh, S&P 500, I think, help diversify a portfolio like uh, global macro and uh, quantitative global macro strategies like CTAs. I think it's going to be a year where um, 
Uh, active management outperforms indexes. You know, we've seen volatility come down a lot uh, across various Okay, Don, people tell us that yeah. every single year. <laughs> like active management well, is going to outperform every year. That's, that's the beginning of the year mantra for people in the financial industry. Well, you know, for a decade, it didn't happen. For a decade, you just had everybody putting money in index funds. And that just caused index funds to outperform. So last year, you did see... Uh, uh, long short equity managers at a lot of alpha relative to the S&P 500. And I think you're going to see the same thing this year because I think you're going to see more volatility in the marketplace. And volatility is good for active management because active managers are you know, picking a target price to sell at. And if you have volatility, it reaches that target price quicker. You also are able to buy securities at a lower price because mm. you have High volatility, prices go below the intrinsic value. So what about then uh, value versus growth or small versus big? Uh, I think a small and mid-cap are where you want to be. Uh, relative valuations look very strong. I also like outside the U.S. So international small cap, um, much greater in efficiencies, better valuation standpoint. I think you're going to see a weakening of the dollar. There's greater inefficiencies, not as many Wall Street coverage of uh, companies over in Asia. So th that's an area we're focused on. Hey, Don, it used to be, you know, back in the day, if I had two or three good years on the bond desk or equity desk or commodities desk or Goldman or fixed income, I could just go out and hang my own shingle, start a hedge fund, raise a billion dollars. Is that still is that still a thing? It is not. I mean, it's the most competitive industry there is. There's probably 15,000 hedge funds, and they're all calling on the same institutional investors to get money. So these pension funds, endowment funds, foundations, I mean, they are literally getting called by thousands of people that want to sell hedge funds, private equity, real estate, long only. So brand is becoming more and more important in the industry, and you're seeing, you know, for, for example, a majority of hedge funds have less than $500 million in assets, hmm. and probably 5% of flows are going to hedge funds with less than $500 million in assets, yeah. which is a problem because these firms are getting too big, and the bigger you are, the harder it is to generate returns. Well, who are the biggest The biggest winners last year were the absolute behemoths, right? Um uh, Bridgewater and well, Citadel, right? Citadel, yeah, yeah. sixteen billion. Dalio and all those guys. Yep. So, so if you look at the HFR index, that they have one index that equally weights hedge funds, and that was down about four percent. They have another one that's asset weighted, kind of like the S and P asset weights companies. Yeah. The asset weighted one was flat performance wise, but that's really unusual. If you go back over long periods of time. Smaller hedge funds significantly outperform large hedge funds, and I think that's going to be the case going forward. So if you really want to generate a lot of returns for hedge funds, you don't want to invest in the largest hedge funds. You want to find the up-and-comers. How about the commodity space? How does investors play that? Because commodities have had a big run, and we're talking about inflation here. And China's reopening. China's reopening. Well, obviously uh, – Commodities did really well last year. There are uh, a couple different ways you can play it. I mean, they're, they're pure commodity managers that you can invest in. 
you could also invest in you know global macro that's allocating to equities, fixed income, currencies, commodities, and let them choose you know what weight commodities should be. There's also uh, these quantitative managers I mentioned before, CTAs. It's right. probably 15% of the hedge fund industry. They're quantitatively trying to determine where the best value is. And again, you let them determine whether they should be heavily weighted in commodities or not. All right. Good stuff. All right, Don, appreciate it. As always, giving us a lay of the land on the hedge fund biz. Don Steinbrook, uh, founder and CEO of Agecroft. He is a proud alum of the University of Richmond. He's a fellow spider like me. And He's alum of Summit High School in Summit, New nice. Jersey, class of 1980. Some stellar people came out of that class, I can tell you right away. One of the most read stories on the terminal deals with our good friends at Goldman Sachs, CEO David Solomon. His pay is getting cut by 30% in 2022 to $25 million, and that's during a year in which the share price and profit tumbled and the firm retreated from a highly public effort to create a consumer bank. Who broke that news? Shanali Basak and Steve Dixon. Shanali Basak, she covers all things Wall Street for Bloomberg News. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. When I first read your reporting, Shanali, I said, good for Goldman Sachs, good for David Solomon. The, the rank and file are taking pay cuts this year. Bonuses are down, and here's my leader participating in the pain too. Yeah, I think that was my read. Well, you have to look at two things here. According to people familiar with the matter, this is definitely in line with cuts you're going to see for okay. partners and senior managers at Goldman. But then you also have to take a look at what the filing says here and what it says about uh, why oh, you look at filings. I, I look at a lot of filings. Oh, I just read it's the reporting. It's the only place okay. anymore after FTX <laughs> that I could trust anything anymore. Okay. <laughs> but I think it's really important to look at what, because board determines compensation at the end of the day. Uh, his base pay to stay the same as at $2 million, which is often done, but the variable compensation was what dropped off meaningfully. Last year was a record year, but... The one thing that they said also is that this is kind of in line with his ability to strategically reposition the firm. So both the fact that you have come down from a record year, last year you had record levels of pay, you also had special awards tied to last year's pay for David Solomon, but this year you have to remember that this 30% drop in his total compensation package is just so much steeper than you're seeing at the other banks. Morgan Stanley's drop is only 10%. Jamie mm. Dimon at J.P. Morgan, it's stable. They did get rid of his special award package that shareholders kind of revolted against last year. So it's not like there was no pressure on Jamie Dimon's uh, pay, but you do see this kind of uh, typical compensation package really fall a lot more at Goldman Sachs than you saw at the other banks. So how much does the, do we say the failure of Marcus that, is that you safe know, to say? The reason you could say that is because there are parts of markets that they're unwinding. I think it's confusing because it's really like a lending business, but they have Green Sky, which is a separate lending business. So it's not like there's not a consumer business there. They just bought a huge one. Yeah, no, but when yeah. they first announced these plans, um, some of us who know less about Wall Street than you and Allison Williams thought, okay, Goldman Sachs is going to come in and rule. You know, everyone's going to be using Marcus. They're going to own the high-end consumer segment. Let me and ask they you something. Do you really use Marcus? Who you, how many people do you know that uses Marcus to borrow money from? Uh, or even Goldman Sachs to borrow money from? What you did at Marcus was put your cash in at an interest rate that was way higher than you got anywhere else for a long amount of time. So when they engage with consumers, because remember, they still have a lot of high net worth individuals that are really important to their going forward strategy. Goldman has always managed money for the richest of the rich in the world. Do 
they keep a business like Marcus where they're working with so many companies and they want to get these younger folks that are going to get wealthier over time that work for those companies and you know manage their money have them save with them I think these are big existential questions for Goldman Sachs which is very different than like hey let me get a chase card but at the time <laughs> at the chase time it seemed like right? they were gonna beat out N26 and Revolut and I they didn't think at the time it seemed always... like they were gonna take they were gonna be the American Express Platinum card of the future and they're not I think that Good that point. was a pipe dream always frankly I think that that was a bit of hype around well the I was excited about it and now I'm disappointed <laughs> no you never were I sat next to you <laughs> reporting on Matt Miller who always said that the golden card sucks <laughs> he always did him and Tom Keen but there was never really that much of a product so yet does, anyways. They, does David Solomon do you think he, from shareholders' perspective, the board perspective, maybe the the partnership perspective, does he get marked down for Marcus, and if so, how much? Well, listen. At the end of the day, there were parts of the bank that were having record numbers, really just blowout, blowout, blowout performance. Remember, Goldman Sachs, their equities trading desk last year had some quarters where they even surpassed Morgan Stanley. Their deal makers blew through the roof yep, by yep. a margin that I have not seen in many, many, many years relative to the other banks. But, this but Marcus, this seems consumer. reputational to me, and it, it, I don't know if that was blank fine. Was that blank fine? Was that? I can't remember really. Because I'm wondering if I'm the board or if I'm Solomon. I mean, do I have to worry a little bit here that I'm going to be painted by – this market thing's really going to be an issue for me longer term. This, the this consumer business lost $2 billion yeah. last year. It lost $4 billion over a couple of years, a few years there. And so even beyond the reputational issue, it is a money issue. And not for nothing, $25 bucks for the CEO of Goldman Sachs, that's nothing. You walk across the street to Carlisle Group, the KKR – those guys are really making the bank. So one thing we didn't see yet, this was just the CEO paychecks that we were seeing, the, the compensation packages yep. that are coming out through fi regulatory filings. What has not come out yet is my favorite filing, which is the proxy. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> Where you see the total executive and director's compensation. So what is his number two, number three, number four making? Are yep. they fa facing the same types of pressure on their compensation? And if a trader makes $100 bucks, Goldman Sachs doesn't report that in any filing. Right, and, yeah. and there are plenty of people yep. who make more money than the CEOs at these banks, yep. to your point. And to yep. the other point you're making, that's interesting, speaking of Wall Street talent and hiring, you know, uh, Jonathan Gray at Blackstone this week had told me they're slowing hiring at Blackstone. And they had a huge uh. compensation package for their private equity guys last year, but that was mostly because they were able to sell a lot of companies at the beginning of last year. Is the Goldman Sachs of the world, are they going to bring in their 200 analysts into their investment bank or 300 analysts or wh whatever it is, like Citi and Goldman Sachs? Works? Are the big banks still doing that or are they paired that back? That's Great question. I don't know what younger people hiring looks like this year. Right. I keep on uh, my my friend Hugh Sun, who works at CNBC. What, what does Tom King call it? The Death Star. Yes, I don't think uh, you're allowed to say that on our air. I'm agnostic. <laughs> yes, and so uh, news is news is news. And so when you look at what he had kind of calculated, it was interesting. If you look at the severance packages for all the people who are being laid off at Goldman, the, if you average it out based on the number of people who are being let go, it's like $140,000, I want to say, which is a very low end um, in terms oh, of okay. pay scale. I see what you're saying. Which means either younger workers are being laid off or back office workers are being yep. laid off for the most part. There are definitely retirements happening across Wall Street at a faster rate. So right. you are seeing people leaving on the higher end of the pay scale. But do you then hire a lot more young people coming in I don't well, know I'm gonna, I'll go down to Duke in a couple of months for my board meeting I'll get the first hand skinny because that we get those numbers you know, I they're hear reporting. they're nervous I hear MBAs and young yes. people are nervous 
Can I just talk about something else real quick? Sure, I'm excited go, go. about next week. Yep. Yes. I'm going down to Miami tomorrow. Nice. Wow. It's hedge fund week. Oh, of course. And they're not meeting in Cleveland. They're and meeting in they're Miami. They're meeting in okay. Miami. It's right. Paul Singer. It's Kim Kardashian, who is now. <laughs> wait, wait, <laughs> Paul wait. Singer, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> Paul Singer makes sense to me, uh, Elliot. Kim Kardashian? She now has a private equity firm. I, my newsletter is coming out, calls her the buyout queen. Because remember, there's not that many women leading private equity firms. <laughs> and so she's doing kind of like the keynote, like end speech at this big conference. There are four conferences down there in Miami starting this weekend. Morgan Stanley's big conference, a huge prime broker. The, um, the MFA conference, the iConnections conference. Wow. Uh, there's Tiger 21, which is a lot of high net worth individuals. I saw Sam Zell Oh, yeah. That, that, that's um, right. We list. talked to the Tiger guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to be kind of uh, hanging out in nice. a lot of hotel lobbies trying to hunt down executives. Matt, nobody better that we would want down there than Shanali. No, I'm excited. Uh, and I mean, Shanali is one of the best reporters that I know here. At Can I carry your bags? Can I, I? I would do that. You guys are so nice to me. Uh, well, we'll <laughs> we look forward to we look forward to Just getting the, um, the the download, the skinny or whatever you call it from Miami from Shanali next week when she is down in Miami. You'll call in, right? I'll call in. Excellent. Nice. Excellent. Mike McGlone's down there too. Maybe we'll get him to go over there and do some. You know, frontline reporting on maybe you know the ETFs and crypto and all. Maybe that Mike McGlone can talk to Kim Kardashian. <laughs> exactly, I'm sure you like that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at Matt Miller 1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.